Hello, anybody there? Hello. Hey, Jen, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I'm so excited to uh, to get to talk about your latest work and to learn a little bit more about your work and where you come from. So um, if we may begin, <laughs> mm-hmm. could you tell me a little bit about where you're from? Uh, what, what's that world like? Um, I'm from California, and I'm, I'm back in California. I've been back for about 10 years, but I lived in many places. Uh, I spent a long time in Texas and I, I lived in France and Russia at one point briefly. Um, and so I grew up in the Bay area in a blue collar family. And, um, my parents probably taught me about storytelling without realizing it. My mom was the kind of person who she had lived in the same County all her life and knew everyone. She'd come home from any errand or from going to church or whatever, and she'd have a story. She wouldn't mm. just talk about, she wouldn't just gossip and she wouldn't just talk about who she ran into, but she'd have a story with a beginning, middle, middle and end kind of organically. <laughs> and, um, and my dad was um, the one who was responsible for taking me to see a lot of horror films when I was a child. <laughs> and, and maybe he shouldn't have done that. I think nowadays everyone would be scandalized, but um, I think he really helped me to uh, embrace a passion and to watch visual stories on a screen. Um, yeah. And yeah, it was, it was, he was doing the right thing. <laughs> so can you remember when you started writing and what that kind of writing was like? What, what kind of stories were you, were you trying to create if you, if you were at that point? When I was little or when yeah, I was starting yeah. to be did, more serious? Did you have an inclination when you were younger that you were going to do this or did that come later in life? No, I definitely knew it. Um, and, and they were scary stories, which is kind of funny. Um, I was in seventh grade at Catholic school and I wrote a story and my teacher, who was a nun, we didn't have that many nuns, but she was one of the <laughs> few who'd been there for so long. She taught one of my siblings and uh, I'm much younger than the other children in my family. So mm-hmm. she knew us and she was very, very impressed. And she read the story aloud. And she told me I was going to be a writer, but it was kind of like she cursed me. Um, I don't, I don't know if she realizes. I don't think she's even alive anymore. But I don't know if she realized what she was doing because um, she did kind of set me down the the terrible, difficult path by making me feel like, oh, you have to do this. You just have to do this. You're so gifted. It's your natural talent. But of course, it was a long time before I was publishing work and um, mm-hmm. before I remembered that I wanted to do this. I think a lot of us go through a period where we feel like we have to grow up and get serious. And I think Mm -hmm. that really threw me off the track. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. I feel like uh, in my personal life, there's been so many times when I feel like I'm, I'm at the, at the very edge of where I'm supposed to be, but then there's a whole bunch of setbacks and life kind of happening and throwing so many obstacles in, in many different directions. So it's great to hear that you've, you've began a career in writing and it seems like you've, you've published several other works. Could you talk a little bit about those works and how they led up to this novel? Um, I have only worked with small independent presses, which I think is also important because they'll mm-hmm. take a risk on you where, where the big five or whatever it is now, the big four <laughs> absolutely will not anymore. Um, or that's the way we all feel. Um, I have written two novellas and a chapbook. Um, one of the novellas is kind of, 
well, everyone thinks it's autobiographical, but I don't, I, I don't think it is. It's made up, but it's very about a little girl, very much like me in the Bay Area. The person, the person I was just describing earlier would be the narrator of that novella. And then with the Kelping, which is the second novella I published, it becomes more um, surreal and horror based. And um, my chat book is fairy tales. So mm. they do all kind of lead up to this novel in, in their own way. Yeah. Yeah. So. When did you begin writing uh, Varushka, which I have to say before we get into it is a phenomenal work. I just finished it a couple of days ago and I've still been sitting with sort of the, the lingering emotions of that experience because I love how compact it is. I mean, it's, it's a, just a brilliant work that, that crams so much legacy and story into, into a very concise piece of work that um, it left me reeling from the beautiful nightmare that it was so i just want to congratulate you on that before we go into the process of the work thank you so much it makes me feel really good to know that um and that it was emotionally resonant and, yeah yeah and that and you a, didn't and mind it being so intense and compact that's kind of the way <laughs> I, I kind of the way i roll and was was there a question i'm just kind of yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. I think what I wanted to ask you initially was, uh, how long has this been working its way within your writing? When did you get a glimpse of Varushka and what it could be? Um, I want to say that it's such a work from my unconscious that it surely must have been there from the very beginning without me quite understanding. Um, I feel like it unifies a lot of strands of my life and my work. Uh, I literally began it during quarantine, mm. and I think, I'm not sure at what point I realized you're writing a novel, um, but I think it had something to do with, um, well, those opening chapters, when you're out in Topanga with the little family, mm -hmm. I was finding my anchor in the kind of dark and precarious world of the little girl's consciousness, and that was where I really wanted to be. Um, and then I realized that the telling and I wanted it to be, I mean, it is coming of age, but I wanted it to be a family novel. So I realized this is very much a good project for a multi-perspective novel. Um, I love multiple, multiple POV uh, uh, to read it and to write it. And I thought, okay, other people in this family need to get in there and tell their story, <laughs> tell their experience. We'll see that they've all run into the villain or somebody close to her at some point or another. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the major victories of the story is how elegantly you were able to piece the revelations of the family into just these very discreet, very just again compact and well written. And somebody mentioned Stark in in the writing, and I, I feel like there's something happening there in terms of your influences that I'd like to talk a little bit about. But I just really enjoyed how. You took your time with it. And you may have mentioned in here, um, I believe it was the interview you did with uh, Luna Station, where yes. you were talking about how the different characters should should carry the weight of the story in some respects. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? Because it's such an interesting way of, of looking at it. I think this happens with all family histories, whether they're written down or not, whether they're fictional or true i don't even know if you can produce a true family history because everyone in the family has a different version of the story uh, it fascinates me that you can be 
in the same room at the same wedding and, and be having a different experience, you know, from your siblings yes. or your parents, um, people will start screaming at each other. That's not what happened. That's not what I said. I was there. I remember this. You know, it's, <laughs> it's seared in my brain. And so I think that's kind of wonderful. The chaos from shared emotional memory, it seems both challenging and potentially very crazy making to try to write it down as a, as a literary work. But um, <laughs> I was, thinking I couldn't it's hard for me to come up with other examples but um Faulkner for instance the mm. sound and the fury is, uh -huh. is told that way and that's that's a great example I think of of different people pitching in even though he's he's much more um <laughs> ele elegant than I am and much more accomplished I really can't see having it any other way though when you're talking about a family I feel like everyone has to has, has to have their say as they do in real life yeah, or I, if they oh. refuse to have their say, the children are often forced to make it up, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. And if, par if parents won't answer questions. And that's certainly access impetus for the for one of our protagonists to to move forward. And I, I mean, I can't I don't really want to talk too much about the character machinations because I feel like I might give something away. And, and yes. this is just so elegant the way you revealed it that I really hope that the reader can experience that. The way that I did, um, but just to to kind of dovetail a little bit into the influences because that was very resonant with me. I love the way that you described your influences in from fairy tales, and you'll have to yes. correct me if I'm wrong uh, uh, about the earthenness of yeah. of those works. Using those stories as sort of a jumping yes. point for the work that you created here. Yes, um, I, I think I was thinking of one uh, fairy tale from a Russian fairy tale with Vasilisa the Wise and Baba Yaga. You're familiar with the witch Baba Yaga? The yes, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, she, she's an international sensation. So she, she started in Russia, but everyone writes about her and I think everyone is afraid of her. And that um, is sad. I mean, we Vasilisa becomes a nobleman's wife, but um, that is set pretty much in the forest, in the dark. And I like the fairy tales from Russia and and the Grimm's tales as well because they're they are earthy as opposed to um, and I've said this in other interviews and probably at cocktail parties before. So if anybody <laughs> out there is listening, I apologize, but I kind of prefer them to the tales of the French court, which are very much of of the court of the city, um, focused mm -hmm. on balls and ball gowns and finery and wealth. <laughs> and it's important to that society to talk about how much people own. And this is a little different. This is um, people close to the earth, walking along the dirt in the dark with very little to help them except for their instincts and occasional maybe help from animals or from talismans or some good advice that somebody in your family might have given you. <laughs> and um, and I feel like that's what I mean by being anchored to the child's consciousness in the beginning of the book, because she doesn't really know what she's doing or where she's going. She's little. She's still learning English. You know, she's so small and... Mm -hmm. um, very much the feeling of grasping in a void at times and making sense of things for the very first time. And so uh, speaking specifically uh, about Devon, um, because I feel like, like she is our way in to that childlike mm -hmm. wonder of, of the entire piece. What is it that, that led you to really understand where that character was coming from when you wrote it? Because obviously there's drafts and rewrites and you're writing things out to figure out what this thing is going to be, but what were some anchors of clarity for her character 
to you that that came to you? Okay, so first of all, I keep saying the word unconscious, and I don't know <laughs> if that's if that's very helpful. Um, that's great. I want to give give some credit to Kathy Fish, who I've studied with uh, for flash fiction, because she was always encouraging us to trust the unconscious and kind of trying to return us there when we were hard up for inspiration or or mm. even subject matter. And I I think that in general, as a writer, I realize that's that's all you have really like you can go out and do a bunch of research and you can take (laughs) notes and you can draft and draft and draft and you can get into a great mfa program and have great beta readers but it all comes if you want originality and we're very concerned with that these days right lately with ai (laughs) and so forth if you want that you need to return to the unconscious and um so that sounds straightforward but it's actually a huge mystery um Mm -hmm. and how you choose language to write about it is a big challenge and I was trying to both um, convey Devin's experience in language that would, that you could plausibly think of that a child would think that a child would say that. But at the same time, I wanted to reflect the terror of her parents watching this and not mm-hmm. knowing what's going on or how to get in there or yeah. is someone else influencing her. And, you know, I, and from my own parenting experiences, I love how your kids can scare you like <laughs> when you hear them. You hear them talking to someone in their room and there's nobody else there and that can be delightful and it can also be terrifying and they might and oh there's so many things they can't tell you yet because they don't have the language for it and you Mm -hmm. can ask and ask and they won't be able to elucidate and that that's kind of like the wonder and the horror of being a mom or a dad and it's it's so interesting because it is a natural thing for a child to have those tendencies but then as we get older we start losing those things, right? And then it's almost like we lose that language to communicate with our children. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that terrified me about this book and in the best possible way is that it really confronted me with some of my fears about parenting, especially (laughs) when you get to the point where the child is going through a monumental part of their life, which is going through, uh, I guess, I guess puberty becoming, you know, uh, an adult, you know, and, and having these kinds of intense experiences and just feeling completely helpless and at the mercy of something that is that is greater than you in a sense and and disconnecting you from your child but then again that could be self-inflicted and i think you you did that so well when it came to to devon's mother and <laughs> just putting her in that situation i just felt so bad but i i completely empathized with her oh good yeah i mean i get tired of caroline sometimes but i'm i'm be- especially having to reread her, her sections because she reminds me the most of myself, I guess, of most of all the characters. But, yeah. Yeah, but there, there's some some beautiful moments that, that happen in those exchanges. And I think in in the act of preserving that, that innocence or, or fighting for that innocence, Devin becomes, uh, I, I mean, the revelation in, in so many ways. And I don't know that I can elaborate any more than that. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of talking around that we have to do. Yeah, yeah. But uh, let, let's talk about um, the magic of stuffed animals then, if we could, for just a moment, uh, if, if that's okay. Um, yeah, that's always good. I've got one of them with me right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I heard that Henry actually exists. And, and for those who are listening, Henry is a character that is featured in this, in this story. And if you could tell me a little bit about Henry and where he comes from. In real life or in the book? <laughs> a little bit of both, just so that we can he, let yeah, the listener he, know. He is a stuffed animal that belongs to one of my kids. And um, 
not exactly sure how he got chosen to be in this <laughs> responsible role, perhaps because he's so quiet. Um, and I was trying to imagine, you know, children love their toys. They love their animals and they make them come to life. And um, but what if one of them was maybe not such a big help to you <laughs> or if he was <laughs> easily influenced by outside forces? And um, and Henry definitely fell into that role. But then at the same time, we have Bear. Uh, I don't know if you want to introduce Bear. <laughs> yeah, let's, he, let's. Yeah, he doesn't. Ex I don't have a bear. He's, uh, <laughs> he's just a, the kind of bear, the classic teddy bear with the movable joints that we've all seen. Kind of, I don't know if they came from Victorian times, but um, and he's the he's the responsible one, and he's <laughs> the one who's going to help Devon when she needs it. Um, and if it seems silly or strange to have stuffed animals who are who are characters who have a big role to play in a novel. Um, I realize that that also comes from fairy tales, the idea of talking animals or active animals with agency or importance or magic that that definitely comes from the fairy tales. And mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you were listening to the talk that Orion magazine had recently with Kate Bernheimer and Amy Bender. I don't believe so. No. And Kelly Link and Carmen Maria Machado. And it was about fairy tales and climate change because oh. there's a new issue of Orion that ha takes that as its topic. And one of them mentioned, like, if, you know, if you're a fairy tale writer, you take animals very seriously and they get a huge upgrade in your work. And I felt so validated because because <laughs> I don't know how this is a, an adult novel. It's literary horror, I guess you call it. And I don't know how people are going to receive Henry and Bear mm. and understand their importance, not just in a child's imagination, but as characters. Right. With the agency. But it speaks to the challenge of of the genre and, and the forms. Right. I, I feel that you do a really lovely job of defying expectations in the best possible way, because in this form, you wouldn't associate the, the stuffed animals, but at the same time, they fit so wonderfully in this narrative. They make sense and they make the world come alive and lend more credence to that point of view of, of wonder and innocence that is about to become something else. And I think that's what I loved about this so much is that interaction and especially Devon's conversations with her uh, comrades there about yes. trying to figure out a way out of this conundrum that they find themselves in. Um, yes. But <laughs> well, because in their characters, I mean, even the dolls, stuffed animals, they're, they're characters uh, for a while there. Whether If you're destined to become a writer, it's probably your first time to practice dialogue when you're a little kid playing with your toys. Mm. But they're already characters. In their own right. Right. That's why imaginative play is supposed to be so important, I guess, and why we encourage them to do that instead of looking at screens or television. <laughs> yeah. And it leads me to this other point that you had mentioned in the past about the types of stories that we tell to our younger generations. Um, there, there's a podcast I believe you did a, a little while back where, where you mentioned this. And I was curious if you could Give me a little bit of that perspective. Um, are we are we too overzealous to censor sort of what kids are able to consume, or is that you know is there an issue there these days that um, that maybe storytelling can uh, can alleviate? This is a great question, and I think I'm still working it out in my mind as a writer and as a mom. My kids are grown now, but mm -hmm. so I've been through it all, or you know, I'm in, in the home stretch, I guess. Um, <laughs> So one side of me wants to scream, yes, we censor too much. This is ridiculous. This is re 
we're holding them back. They're not learning anything. You're treating them like they're idiots or like they're cowardly. And then another side of me knows that because of the internet, which is a new phenomenon, which is mm. very strange, um, that kids are up against an, a danger that we've never seen before. Um, and I do take that very seriously. Um, because of the, especially because of the strange anonymity on the internet, how people can be hidden doing mm -hmm. strange things and uh, they can have a lot of influence over the young yeah, or the old as we've seen. Um, <laughs> I, Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Over everyone. Um, however, I kind of breaks my heart every time I hear about a book being forbidden uh, or from being, well, not, not just the recent incredible movement to ban everything, which is, is, not a serious thing. It's like, I don't think they're not really talking about literature. They're talking about ideology and, and control. But mm -hmm. um, I just kind of, I'm really skeptical that, that books are terribly, that this idea that books are terribly, terribly dangerous for children. Um, my parents, one thing I, we talked, we started off by talking about them, right? But they mm -hmm. never took a book away from me. Um, they never, they never censored my reading. <laughs> And I don't really think I was damaged by the things I read. Um, and also, you know, something like a fairy tale can be plenty violent and scary uh, in its in the original forms. Uh, right. They really were. And they weren't necessarily for children either. They were kind of cautionary tales for adults a lot of the time. Or commentaries, social commentaries. Right. Um, and it would be... So I guess I'm... Yeah, mm -hmm. go ahead. Oh, I'm, I don't... I'm not answering your question or i'm answering it <laughs> i'm answering it two ways but i think they're both true i think that you i think you should be worried about the internet but i don't think you should be worried about books if it's okay to say that yeah um, i think you should be delighted if you have a child who is curious enough to read a so-called forbidden book and maybe mm -hmm. you should read it together i know yeah. there are some things that are too explicit or unnecessary but I also know if somebody had held me back I, it would have killed me because i was at a certain point there i was on a mission Right. And I couldn't be held back. Yeah. And I do agree with you because I'm torn on this sometimes. And, you know, I'm, my son is 10 years old, so he's getting to that age where things are yeah. are really starting to, to transform yeah, his a, world. It's just about to hit you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I think that's why this book hit me in a particular way that, that uh, made me mm -hmm. appreciate it a lot more. But uh, I do feel that we're not afraid of the books. We're afraid of the conversation that we have to have about the books. And yeah. I think we parents have to take ownership of that. We have to embrace the responsibility to actually tackle these issues with our family, with our children and, and actually speak out in the open, which I have to say, and I apologize if I, if I get too personal on this, but I was raised Catholic. A Me lot too. of my experiences. <laughs> yeah. And I bring it up because I had heard you mention that a lot of my experiences growing up were not positive ones in that environment. Mm -hmm. And so that left me with a lot of concerns about, the way that I talk to my son about these things and mm -hmm. especially taboo things. And, and I think <laughs> what I love about your book is that you, you're so honest and open and there is fear in these characters, but there's also love and a, a desire to do the right thing. Um, which is, which is very like, I don't know. It, it feels like I'm, I'm trying to condense the, the, importance of fairy tales and how we need to bring them back because they, yes. they're such a vessel in their true form yeah. yeah yeah they're an absolute vessel for the things that we're talking about right now but there's totally not a question there i just want to commend you because i think you're oh. you're onto something here 
with the way that you are using this form to to educate us a little bit or even remind us just a little bit <laughs> that this is important. Yeah. yeah. And I also think that in the book um, and in life, it's not that people are trying to keep secrets or information from you. Sometimes you just don't, you're just missing each other. And a lot mm-hmm. of these characters, yeah. that happens to them. Like they, I'm sure that you felt frustrated at times, wanted to scream at them. Like, <laughs> don't you see what's happening? Don't you realize this? How can you? And I think that definitely happens to you as a parent all the time. I'm sure you've noticed. And uh-huh. um, in families, like you might not realize somebody needs your story um, or they might not realize to ask you for it until after you're dead. I've heard that so many times, haven't oh, you, from people yeah. whose parents and grandparents have passed. Oh my God, I wish I could ask them this. I didn't know. I wish I'd asked. I wish I'd asked. A lot of times it's not that we're trying to censor, but we just don't realize it's relevant to someone. Yeah. And that was a really clever way that you were able to package that into the tension of the book because the way you broke it up, the way that you had that information, you know, it's a very sort of dramatic irony of of the whole story that the the audience had that information just a little bit in in some moments uh before the the actual character did and and that was just so delightful i mean coming from the theater that's really what i enjoy is like I know, knowing I that you're on the yeah on the edge of it <laughs> yeah i know and i i told you we wouldn't talk about my my academic background but i did do my dissertation on a on a playwright so yeah I, that's oh there you go from, it's coming from that influence for sure just that whole thing about Put them on the stage at the same time and turn them around and see if they can figure it out, you know? Oh, I love and they that. Can't, they can't always do it. So if I may ask just one question about, about playwrights, okay? Uh, who was a playwright? <laughs> Ostrovsky was a 19th century Russian playwright. Um, oh, lovely. And I was trying interested in his idea of creating a national theater. And he definitely returned to traditional stories. Um mm. Yeah. Were were you left with a feeling that uh, those kinds of philosophies could be relevant right now uh, in this day and age in our country? Ah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> just another, as a playwright. I love last how one. every question is loaded in this time that we're. Living I'm in. so sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's not your fault. It's, it's supposed to be exciting, but it also fills me with dread and fear. Um, yeah, I think that we're that everyone is searching for that in a way, a kind of uh, a purpose or or some kind of representation that they feel is unifying but i think that that people fail to make it collaborative i think there's too many people who want to just take it over and tell everyone else okay this is what we're doing now you know what i mean or um in a way the current disaster of the supreme court is kind of an example of a horrible overriding and it it comes from one viewpoint and it turns out to be minority rule in the end um right I'm sorry. I know you didn't want me to. <laughs> no, but it's it's perfect because I mean I I completely agree with you. I think it's the curse of uh, the pursuit of American exceptionalism in in many mm-hmm. respects, where where we're just we refuse to seek the collective. <laughs> and exactly, it's, it's, and maybe it's time for a new national literature that does that, and the and the yeah. diversity angle is probably the way to that. You know? Uh huh. Right. And and I mean I know that we're wading into into completely different territory, but I want <laughs> I want to be mindful right. of your time and uh, ask you a couple more questions about, sure. about sort of the book and uh, mm-hmm. and where you're coming from with it because clearly this is something that came from within from the the deep unconscious and I wanted to ask you if there was an exercise in particular or a writing method that awakened that for you because i think a lot of us are distracted we're working full-time jobs or doing other things and it's difficult to kind of be one with with that unconscious or reach deep down for that sort of that sort of uh material 
So has there been something that worked for you uh, when yeah, you were in a bind? And, uh, for this book, I don't know if I can, if I've been able to recreate it, but I know it was, it was quarantine and we were, we were locked down mm-hmm. and, and we have four people living in a not too huge apartment. And mm-hmm. I would wake up very early and when it was still barely light I, and before I doing anything else, maybe I got my coffee, but I didn't talk to anyone. I didn't open my phone. I didn't look at anything i would sit down open the document and write at least a thousand words for for a long stretch of time i started my days that way Mm -hmm. and i'm sure it kind of kept me from straying too far from the unconscious mind especially the way you are when you first wake up before you first fully wake up which can be kind of a blessing i think um, before you kick into the panic of the daily life Um, Unless you're like, I know that you, you wake up completely panicked. I open my eyes and I'm already panicking about something. But, right. Uh, <laughs> but I, I what day it is and what does that mean? <laughs> right, right. Um, but I, I do appreciate that because I think the habits of the work are the thing that will allow you to go a little bit deeper. And, mm-hmm. you know, for, for me personally, I, I think it's a wonderful reminder as well. But as you were writing Varushka and as you were putting it together, what was the biggest hardship, if we could talk about the technical aspect of, of this coming together, what was the thing that really broke your confidence in the work? If there was a moment like that. Uh, I don't know if it broke my confidence, but, uh, this is mostly close third from different characters. Um, and before I had been a lot of first person. So I had to go from tied abandon that idea of the first person voice that's going to take care of everything you know i just Uh you're going to be inhabiting the consciousness of different characters and you can be really close in there but you're going to have to be thinking of a different experience a different person with each chapter and they're all set in different years or not all of them but just about and different cities and that was both more challenging and an easier way to try to inhabit a brand new person each time right if that makes sense yeah, because there's there's through lines I'm sure that allowed you to keep those things continuous, even though it was somewhat fragmented in terms of who was delivering the information and and the types of of conflicts that they were going through. But in terms of the the setting of these chapters, these sections, was there difficulty going back to to the periods that you were writing in? Uh, was there a, a conscious sort of research that you were worried about uh, of, of capturing those time periods in the right context for the story? Um, I felt more confident or maybe just font more fond of some chapters than others. I really like <laughs> the grandmother's chapter yeah. in, in San Francisco. And, oh, that and, was great. Uh, yeah. And I, and I actually felt surprisingly at ease in Verishka's forest. I'm not sure why, but um, mm-hmm. long training in fairy tales, I guess. Um, <laughs> I this is when you really need your beta readers. Like um, I had Laurie Sample Brody, who's a, a flash writer, primarily looking at the Topanga chapter very carefully, and she uh, gave it her approval. And she also gave me information, like she knew which library had had a story time during that time period because she oh, was wow. living out there. And I, yeah, I was like, oh, authenticity. I like it. it was so <laughs> so reassuring because you really don't think you're doing the right thing. Like you know, you're so worried you might make a mistake if it's real world based and. So you just have to kind of take your time and ask for help um, and keep your notes. <laughs> <laughs> so working with, with Kathy Fish, who um, I learned recently has a phenomenal sub stack and, and I've been trying to read hers and, and Tommy Dean, who was uh, like those two have been sort of my, my 
very recent. I mean, I'm I'm very new to fiction, um, but okay. they they have been pretty instrumental in the way that I start to see Flash as as so viable and immediate and just powerful. I mean, I, yeah. I've kind of always believed in that uh, in in mm-hmm. terms of like a writing creative mantra or whatever. But I I do think that community and finding those people that you trust is so important. And I'm curious if you could elaborate a little bit on how you were able to make those connections with Kathy and, and, you know, the folks that, that were your readers for this work. Yeah. Um, they actually came out of one of Kathy's classes. And I think there are many people who have little groups that they, of people they met in Kathy's classes. Mm-hmm. She is a huge connector and community leader for us, whether you write flash or decide to write other things. Um, I think mm-hmm. everyone knows her importance. So um, that's who my beta readers were. And uh, at least two of them are here in LA. And um, the other two are back east that I used. And um, years ago, we we met in, in the before, I call it the before times, you know, pre-Trump <laughs> and so forth. <Yeah. laughs> years ago, we met in, in that context. And um, and they were gracious enough to read a longer work from me. It, that's another thing. You feel like you're really imposing on people when you drop a novel of any mm, length on them. Yeah. That's, <laughs> it's it, people can get so busy that even dropping a piece of flash is too much. So I, I, you need to take a lot of time and be patient, you know? Mm-hmm. And that takes a lot of trust. I imagine to, yeah. to be comfortable with those folks, but it seems like you have a good group that, that believes in you as a storyteller and in the work that you're putting out, but were they tough on you that were they able to, you know, was there enough clarity there that they could, uh, Oh yeah. You know? We're all tough on each other. And I knew they would be, um, <laughs> And you just have to sit with it. You know, not everything that they say you're going to change or whatever. I mean, everyone's going to have such wildly different reactions, you know, and you have to go with your gut, I guess, but also learn when they're right, when they criticize something you've done or something <laughs> they don't find as plausible. Or, um, and, I, and the older I get and the more experience I get, I think you should just tr- choose readers who are really hard on you. Um, mm. Don't yeah. choose. I mean, don't choose your mom or your spouse unless that person is, in fact, incredibly, de- you know, <laughs> incredibly demanding and critical. And yeah. Although interestingly, my husband did get really involved in reading this book in the later stages, and he just now he's one of the big champions. Oh, that's um, wonderful to hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, I just, I mean, you, you should have somebody in your group that you're a little bit afraid of uh-huh. reading your work <laughs> because if you think this is scary now, it's going to get a lot scarier later. Oh yeah. Absolutely. So speaking of later, when you were uh, shopping this around and trying to figure out where it was going to go, how did you land at your uh, your publisher? And uh, what was that process like? Uh, I had done the agent thing. I think I'll always go out there and try and see if I can lure one of them. Um, <laughs> and I get closer each time, but never uh, representation. Uh, and I don't want any of the listeners to be discouraged by that. Like It just could mean could mean it's not your time or it's better to go with an independent press. Um, yeah. I had seen different people's books coming out of Journal Stone, books that I really admired. Um, like Maria Haskins published with them and Gwendolyn Keist is one of my, who wrote one of my blurbs. And so mm-hmm. I thought, oh, if there was a press I really wanted to get in with, it would be this one. Mm-hmm. Um, that was delightful that that worked out. And so did that and take I just, a long I had time? To wait, sorry. Well, I had to wait for them to have an open reading period. Um, and then mm. I had to wait a long time for them to respond. So yeah, that does all that takes forever, which is why it's probably good to have multiple projects going on if yeah. you have that kind of time. Right. So are you going into more long form fiction right now? Like say after you finish Verushka, what was the next thing that you 
decided to pick up while you were waiting? I craved short stories, but not necessarily flash, more like uh, up to 3,000, the three to 5,000 range. So mm. tr more traditional length short story, which I feel is one of the hardest forms there is. I'm not, mm. it's like some kind of little puzzle that yeah. is difficult every time. Um, so I, I wanted to go back to that. And right now I'm, well, when the dust settles more, because it's really hard to write while you're promoting, but um, yeah. I have one short story and the beginnings of one novel that I'm working on. So you're you're it's, going back into novel uh, form? If it, well, eventually. I mean, I'm at the in the very early stages, so. <laughs> and I'm not able to sit down and do that thing where it feels like the world is dark and quiet currently for some reason. So oh, yeah. um, that method I just talked to you about, you know, I don't know if it'll always be the working method for me right um but it feels good to have a, a novel that i'm thinking about and a story that i'm working on right to go right. back and forth between the two forms and just to to clarify here the the novel is coming out just this week so we're actually going to have this episode up this week for for us to celebrate the oh, release wonderful. yeah I th i'm really excited about that and i can't wait to make a little bit of noise uh, for the release. I think it's, it's just such a wonderful work and uh, I'm yeah, really excited for the world to, uh, to check it out, but just a couple more questions here sure. um, just to be, to be mindful. Cause I know it's a weekday and it's so random and I, I appreciate I keep your thinking time. It's Sunday because <laughs> the, the fourth was yesterday. <laughs> right. Right. I had a long weekend and so I'm a little disoriented. Um, so I thank you for your patience. So now that, um, that the story is about to come out into the world, can you can you just sit with me in the moment when you finish this work and and what was what was your immediate response to Varushka and the world that had been built uh, when you finally saw it as something that was cohesive that could run and and had legs? Mm -hmm. When did that happen? You mean? Or yeah. What, what yeah. did it feel like? <laughs> yeah, the feeling. I mean, I, I'm all into the feeling uh, because it, clearly this has been a long time coming, and there's a reward. You know, there's a there's a feeling. You know, at the end of that long race. You know, I don't know if that if there is a moment that stays still like that because what ends up happening is is that you have to reread it so many times to the point where you almost feel like you're <laughs> killing it and yourself. But knowing that there's a, a rhythm to it, like I think I would always reread it the same way, like uh, put it down at the same points and come back to it because I, I couldn't do it in one day because you're some of this is line editing. So you have to be super vigilant and um, feeling like, oh, I know Elaine is coming and I, I know I can go back to San Francisco <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to be really happy in that chapter or, oh, we're at the forest finally. And, you know, this is what I've been waiting for my whole life. Like, uh, I think I think forcing yourself to live through the experience of it over and over again convinces you that it has legs as you say mm. if that makes sense is there's yeah. not a moment i think movies make us movies about novelists and writers make you think that there are moments where it all changes for you <laughs> but in life i don't think that's true especially oh, now that. since a book deal won't help won't help you at all you know right you know, it's it's process so what is it that that we need to uh to be looking for when uh i guess let, let me phrase it this way what do you think the audience should be taking away from Varushka in terms of female empowerment being seen as, as a potentially destructive force. Um, and I don't know if I'm phrasing this the right way, but I just think there's something so powerful at the core of Varushka, the work and the character that speaks mm -hmm. to a kind of duality that is, that is, um, 
that is abused by by our society in in which we see female empowerment as a bad thing. Yeah, I know. Um, and it's hard to talk about it without yeah, exactly. the, the yeah. ending. <laughs> and I, I apologize if I may have spoken too much on it already. No, I, I apologize if I have written too much. Um, <laughs> I guess I know what you mean. Like, um, She's kind of wonderful and horrifying at the same time. So I think if you're looking for a good villain, I think I can give you that. Um, <laughs> I think that maybe the answer to your question is not in Verushka herself, but in... Um, Devon and Varushka, you see, because I yeah. have a hard time at at times choosing a hero for the novel. I know it's Devon. She takes over and she puts things right, or she tries to. <laughs> but, um, I mean, it is called Varushka, right? It's, it's the title of the book and her face is on the cover and and she's the vibe of the, of the book launch and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I Maybe this is a way of having it both ways. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> having it both ways because um it's such a responsibility when you write about an evil person isn't it um, absolutely the temptation yeah the temptation to let her take over everything was tremendous and but i i do believe that was the mark of a brilliant antagonist a, a brilliant bad personality coming to try to take over as as they're meant to do and uh you, you know lastly before we wrap up i i just uh I, I was curious if there is a um, a couple of things that you might want to share for those who are just starting out, in particular in this genre that you love so much that you write in, that um, might be useful for for younger folks who are looking to get started in in these types of uh, stories. For one thing, I would say embrace your monster and let them do everything that they possibly can <laughs> before you decide what you're going to do with them or what you want them to what you want to do with them. I mean, you, and if they, if, if that's your hero, I think it, it might be, um, well, I don't know. I think people are hungry always for good villains. I think that they love them. Um, readers and viewers love them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you should let them be evil. I think we have a lot of evil in our <laughs> world and sometimes it's easier to deal with it in this form than in the, the form that you and I both know is out there and that we worry about all the time mm-hmm. for our children and our future in general and for the planet. Um, for female characters or people living in a female body, um, I feel like that's there's so much body horror that comes with being in a female body. It's just <laughs> naturally there. And that was always inspirational to me, both in life and in, in art. Um, I never wanted to share, shy away from it. It, it and that's that's just such a natural part of the horror of existence. Although I don't know if everybody wants to write about that, but um, so I, I think that's why I often return to the to the young teenage mm-hmm. girl and her issues and her experiences. <laughs> well, I gotta say um, that's probably one of my favorite things that's ever been said on this podcast. I, I think that you really epitomize the the beauty of the horror genre in its possibility with this work that you've put together. And I think that's a beautiful note to end on. And um, Jan, I can't thank you enough for your patience with me uh, as we tried to get this thing scheduled and uh, your brilliant work that that tries to explore so much and, and does a tremendous job of illuminating the world that we live in through like the, the most horrific, amazing means and, uh, and for your time, because this was amazing. And Again, congrats on this this work. I, I absolutely loved it, and I'm probably going to be checking it out again 
here in the near future once I digest it. <laughs> Thank you so much for your support and and your your praise. It means a lot to me. It really does. Well, it was a it was an awesome time, and uh, I hope that the launch goes well. This will be going live real soon, and uh, and yeah, let's stay in touch. I'd love to chat again down the road and keep me posted because oh, yes. I'll be around. Okay, I will too. <laughs> well, Thank th you very very much. Yeah, thanks again, Jen, and you take care. Talk soon. Bye. Bye.